From WFIU in Bloomington, Indiana, I'm Kate Young, and this is Earth Eats. We spoke with Bobby Booz, who is a local, amazing... She's a legend. And she suggested that we reconsider what we've been doing and think about being a, a beginning farm. <laughs> and that was really beautiful for her to see us that way. This week on our show, the first installment of a three-part series following a couple of young farmers on their quest to find a place of their own. To raise their small family, oh, and about 25 sheep. And Madeline Beck has a story about a futuristic gene editing technology and the challenges of marketing it to an increasingly suspicious public. That's all coming up, so stay tuned. First, let's go to Renee Reed for news. Hi, Renee. Hello, Kate. Great to be here. The city of Bloomington, Indiana, has shut down its flagship farmer's market for two weeks due to increasing tensions about the presence of vendors with ties to a white supremacist group. Bloomington's mayor, John Hamilton, held a press conference Wednesday to address the decision to shut down the market. Two days ago, our public safety officials reported to me information identifying threats of specific individuals with connections to past white nationalist violence. After discussions, we made the determination that protecting public safety required the two-week suspension. Last Saturday, Bloomington police arrested a protester standing next to the vendor's booth. She was holding a sign stating that the vendors were part of Identity Europa, a white nationalist hate group. Also present at the vendor's stall were several armed men who identified themselves as members of Indiana 3%, a group dedicated to defense against government overreach. Indiana state law permits guns in most public venues. The city hopes to institute increased safety measures at the market, allowing it to reopen on August 17th. Check the Earth Eats website for alternative produce outlets for local farmers. Farmers across the country are reeling from the impact of the trade war with China, unless they're rich. Bailout payments from the Trump administration, meant to offset the effects of the trade war, are largely going to wealthy white farmers, according to a report by the Environmental Working Group. In July 2018, the Trump administration announced it would provide farmers with up to $12 billion in aid to mitigate lost revenue from the trade war. A second round of payouts, totaling $16 billion, was announced last week. According to data obtained by the New Food Economy through the Freedom of Information Act, the top 11 percent of soybean producers applying for the funds received more than half of all soy payments through February. The largest 3 percent received more than a quarter of all payments. Overall, the top 1 percent of recipients received on average more than $180,000 each and farmers in the bottom 80% on average received less than $5,000. Of the $8.5 billion distributed through this program, 99% went to white business owners. This data reflects larger historical trends of racial discrimination at the USDA, deepening disadvantages for black and minority farmers. The method used to calculate these payments remains unclear. Michigan Senator Debbie Stabenow of the Senate Committee on Agriculture, Nutrition, and Forestry stated that these short-term, inequitable payouts don't serve as a replacement for markets and a coherent trade strategy. 
Quote, this aid is not equitable and favors certain farmers over others, Stabenow continued. Quote, bottom line, it's not fair. Bailout recipients remain eligible to receive commodity subsidies, crop insurance subsidies, and other typical forms of federal assistance this year and beyond. Thanks to Alex Chambers and Taylor Killow for those stories. And thank you, Renee. Absolutely. Sci-fi writers have long warned us about the dangers of modifying organisms. Remember Jurassic Park? But new futuristic gene editing technologies are becoming a reality. And Harvest Public Media's Madeline Beck talked with researchers about how to present the new tools to a long skeptical public. This is the sound of giant locusts attacking towns in Illinois. It's from a 1957 movie called Beginning of the End. Basically, a scientist used radiation to make giant fruits and veggies. Pesky grasshoppers got in, ate some radioactive stuff. But their cell division accelerated immediately. That is, they started to grow abnormally fast. Giant killer locusts probably aren't that big of a threat, but the movie demonstrates our long-held fear of messing with nature. But a real-life revolt against gene editing came up when the public found out just how much food was being genetically modified. If you put something out where the public isn't comfortable with it, it doesn't matter what the science says. Once their mind is made up, they're not comfortable with it. It can be very hard to reverse it. Stephen Moose researches and teaches crop genetics at the University of Illinois. He says that the fear of GMOs might have been avoided if the public had been led into decision-making processes from the beginning. And he says we should do that with new gene editing technology, like with CRISPR, something that makes it easier to edit genes, or with this kind of crazy thing called gene drive. So gene drive is a case where you alter the outcome of inheritance. There are rules, and you can, if you understand how that process works, you can make it violate the rules. So let's say we edit a mosquito gene so it's born with a trait that's bad for it, even kills it. Usually, baby skeeters born without that trait would survive and take over. Evolution. But what if we make it so 100% of offspring get that killer trait? That's gene drive. Eventually, it basically creates a dead end, you know, a genetic dead end. The population collapses. And while it may be decades off from regulatory approval, researchers are making baby steps, like with water hemp and palmer amaranth, some of the nastiest weeds Midwest farmers battle. The University of Illinois' Patrick Trannell studies the plants and is looking into using gene drives on them. But let's be clear, he's nowhere near a finished product. They're just now trying to find the genes that they'd eventually need to edit. So yeah, I mean, we're a long ways away at this point. And any approved gene drive will likely require some sort of fail-safe or kill switch to make sure it doesn't wipe out a species. So it's not our goal to eradicate water hemp from the face of the earth. Nobody wants to do that. Even though it's a weed, I'm sure it has some benefits to some organism somewhere. But Trannell says this research is important because it could help overcome herbicide resistance, reduce the need for herbicides like Roundup and Dicamba, and help us produce more food for a growing world. 
Along a similar vein, Omar Akbari at the University of California, San Diego, is researching how to use gene drives to potentially deal with an invasive fly. And it certainly sounds like the star of a sci-fi thriller, Drosophila Suzuki. It infests fruits and berries in a pretty intense way. Females have a serrated ovipositor. Uh, essentially, it's like a knife that is on their posterior end, and it enables them to stab the fruit with this knife and inject their eggs into the fruit. Eggs inside a fruit are hard to kill, but Akbari says they're looking at other ways to handicap the fly beyond gene drive because that tech is so far off. Still, he and Trannel and Moose agree. The public needs to come along on these early steps for gene drive to ever be tried in the field. They're not even asking for full support. They just want the public to make knowledgeable decisions based on costs and benefits. And of course, no scientist wants to be personally responsible for unleashing some sort of sci-fi plague onto the Earth. I'm talking about giant locusts. Giant locusts are responsible for all of this. Madeline Beck, Harvest Public Media. Find more from this reporting collective at harvestpublicmedia.org. Production support comes from Bill Brown at Griffey Creek Studio, architectural design and consulting for residential, commercial, and community projects. Sustainable, energy-positive, and resilient design for a rapidly changing world. Bill at GriffeyCreek.studio. Elizabeth Rue, enrolled agent with Personal Financial Services, assisting businesses and individuals with tax preparation and planning for over 15 years. More at PersonalFinancialServices.net and insurance agent Dan Williamson of Bill Resch Insurance, offering comprehensive auto, business, and home coverage in affiliation with Pekin Insurance. Beyond the expected. More at 812-336-6838. Okay, so about 6 a.m., Brett gets up and he opens the back of the van and he said, I'm going to see how many sheep I can fit in the back of my van. So that was the plan. And then Greg came out, and it turns out he got 17 sheep into the back of the van. Yes. What kind of van are we talking about here? Chrysler Plymouth. Like, just, he took all the seats out and put up a gate, like a dock gate, in between the front two seats in the back. And they just kept jumping in. So he didn't mean to take that many. He only put in like two mamas, but then all the babies were like, where are they going? Where are they going? So they just jumped in and he was about to close the door and two more like just just ran towards the van. So he's like, oh, and then let them in. So 17. (laughs) And then the drive over was absurd, right? Because it was raining off and on that day and Fine the horse is in his trailer and they're all following each other. It's just out of control. Everybody lived, though. We didn't have any losses. Lauren McAllister and Brett Volp are sheep farmers. They tend a flock of sheep, a heritage breed known as Jacob sheep. They're a smaller breed of sheep, but more like the size of goats. They're a more primitive breed. They don't, they don't need a lot. You just sort of move them around. To, they, they're really good at um, taking care of themselves, honestly. They have double horns. So. We have, they usually have four for us, but sometimes they can have six. 
even the, the ewes will have horns. Yeah, and the wool is kind of like a mid-grade, so it's not as plush as obviously some of the other ones that are longer, but it's a great blend. Um, the length of it, texture, color. Um, There's like three colors really in this breed. Um, sometimes they have the white turns a little um, uh, purplish, like I think it's called lavender, and it's really interesting. So you might be asking yourself, why are they moving sheep in a Chrysler Plymouth minivan? Well, it's complicated. Because that's how we got the sheep. They were a wedding present. And we got married. So that's how it all started. Yeah, we asked for farm animals <laughs> and plants for our wedding. <laughs> if anybody chose to, and a few did. When Brett and Lauren got married in 2013, they asked for farm animals. Half joking and half hoping someone would be crazy enough to give them some. And, well, their friend Marianne was game. At the time, they were renting. We were living in Brown County on uh, the old Needmore, Needmore community. And then we got married there and um, had the sheep, the beginning of our, our flock there for two years. And then we came here. We've been here for three and we're just about to move again. The here they are talking about is a rental property near Unionville, Indiana, with some land and the owner was open to them having the sheep and their horse on the property. So they moved them. At the time, they only had a handful of sheep. Now the flock is up to 25. Brett and Lauren have a dream of farming, of raising a flock of sheep for wool and for meat. And that's not all. And then expand to three flocks. So we'll have a chickens, geese, and then the sheep. But Lauren and Brett don't have land and they don't really have the money to purchase land. They aren't inheriting any land from relatives. They've already started their farm. They just don't have the farmland, yet. So they decided to pursue an FSA loan and to find out if it was possible for them to purchase their own land. In a three-part series we're calling Have Sheep, Will Farm, Earth Eats follows Lauren and Brett and their family on a journey as young farmers, with animals, looking to secure some land of their own. This property is 400 acres. It's beautiful. It's mostly um, woods. So there's a, there's a hay field over there that you may have passed when you came. That's still this property, but not, not where I keep the animals. So the part where you pasture them is much smaller than yeah, that. It's probably four or five acres each paddock. And then, and then this area back here, when those get um, eaten down, I move them uh, randomly through this, this field. The land has been sold here. And so we needed to find another place and which in some ways pushed us forward into thinking more about marketing our farm, not just for ourself, ourselves and friends and trade or anything like that, but just actually trying to uh, find a place where we could finally do farming as, as at least um, uh, adding to our, uh, our income. <laughs> I work full time now, so. I have many, many um, uh, pursuits. And some of, some of them pay more than others. I'm an artist and uh, I'm learning massage therapy also. So farming and she's a, she's a yoga instructor now too and personal trainer. We're trying to sort of make our home space 
pay off in a, in a way to keep us there. We spoke with Bobby Booz, who is a local, amazing... She's a legend. And she suggested that we reconsider what we've been doing and think about being a, a beginning farm. <laughs> and that was really beautiful for her to see us that way. What was your long-term goal when you first started? Yeah, we were doing it for ourselves, really. My dad's a veterinarian, so I've grown up with animals and a little bit of farming uh, interest and just, you know, wanting to uh, take care of ourselves better, wanting to learn more. Like if I was going to continue to eat meat, I wanted to eat meat that I knew about, that I actually raised and um, took care of and knew how it was um, treated and slaughtered and just learn more about things that um, I feel like we're losing as a culture to technology and the way things run. Everybody's got to be very specialized. And I, don't, I just don't want to do that. I want to learn a lot of things and be able to help myself and others be more, more uh, independent. What, what about your family's background? Do they have farming? Well, I'm from Knoxville, Tennessee. And so when I was a kid, my grandmother's cousins had a chicken farm. And I remember distinctly a lot of the things that we got was because we were trading that chicken. Um, for the other things, milk. I remember going to the grocery store once and we had a tab. I didn't even know what that was, but it was because they were selling the chickens to the grocery store. And so we could go in and buy the things that we wanted. When I was growing up, my grandmother's garden was huge and it was not about the food. It was about her relationship with the land and her community. You know, we can all agree we like food. Let's sit down. So you really don't think it was about the food? Like she didn't have special dishes that she made or she didn't love the fresh sun-ripened tomato or anything no. <laughs> no that was not it um she like many yeah she cooked three meals a day for 12 people um but it wasn't about if this tomato was organic right. or local <laughs> it was more yeah about yeah and her bringing bringing that food to the church or bringing that food to feed the hungry um or bringing her bringing people to her garden yeah like as a social space that's really interesting yeah it was cool so one thing that one sense that I'm getting just talking to you guys out here with the sheep in the background and everything (laughs) is that you seem to take a lot of joy in this endeavor it's it's a passion yeah definitely it's really enjoyable it really is you you think like oh god I gotta go shear the sheep you know it's it weighs on you for a minute and it's really hard. I've been I wrangle uh, them by myself and hold them to shear them. I have to. I mean, it is intense. But I, at the end of that day, whether you did two or my, I don't know, five or so, was the most I did in a day because it's it's hard work. But you really you like the smell of the animal, the you know you 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 help them out by trimming their nails, making sure they're healthy, look at their teeth, all these things that you don't do for um, a lot of the year to, you know, you don't, you don't corral them and, and really get real one-on-one with them. Uh, it's just satis- it's just satisfying. There's something about it that's uh, getting sweaty and um, a really an intimate connection with them, even though they don't necessarily like that. Uh, you, yeah, it's, it's, you just learn a lot. You just like hands on in anything actually you know using your your intellect and your your body um is fun at the end of the day yeah and i think there's something interesting about having a relationship with something that's not human 
you know you have to interact in a new way when they get out and brett has me come out and help him i have to like get really primal and think okay if i was a sheep i would not want to be ran at or i wouldn't want to have this experience and so you can't just talk them into going the way that you want you have to step lightly you have to keep eye contact you have to be really aware of how they're feeling sometimes when it's really hot they just shake you know and you have to be still enough to watch them do that and notice and humans aren't we don't really take that time a lot of the time i think yeah they're really interesting creatures just sitting here listening to listening to them tear grass and chew it is it's like a meditation you you can uh you just it's just really nice it's just something going on that you wouldn't um, realize unless you spent, you know, at least five to 20 minutes out here, um, being quiet, paying attention. And that, you know, they're really, they do have different personalities and, and watching how, uh, how a flock interacts with their, um, young ones and their, the way their, their pecking order is and all that is really, uh, it's just interesting. That's all. I mean, I'm hardcore about local stuff. You know, I think, 75 miles is far enough. I think you should be able to get everything you need to eat close by from people that you know. Yeah. Yeah, lots of people used to have small farms. You know, not these giant um, monocrop farms that took over 10 family farms, you know? We aren't looking to have 300 heads. That's not, you know, that's not the goal. It's really a sustainable land too one of the things we don't want to to do we want to diversify the the, the possibilities on a on a small piece of land the, the place we're trying to move to if it all works out is uh 25 acres and it used to be a cattle farm a small one though uh so there's a sort of a diversity of pasture and and wooded um, pasture even It's very hard to get started in homesteading with, um, without land, without a investing. place to live, and yeah, somebody in, investing in you. It's it's not easy. Yeah. So that's the best part about this new opportunity. It's been a great journey because we'd be able to do all the things we've been talking about and really settle down, putting in the orchard, putting in a pond, all the things that would create this ecosystem that we can't do when we rent, ultimately. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So. It's a big step, but I think that, especially after talking to the FSA loan manager, she was like, you're ready for this. And we're like, oh, yeah, I guess we're ready. <laughs> so that was nice. Okay, so I don't know much about FSA loans. Can you either of you walk me through that a little bit? Tell me what, what it is. It's a lot like FHA loans where they're reaching out to help people get home ownership, but this is just more focused on agriculture. So we're submitting a business plan and talking about profit and how we're going to sustain not just paying their loan but also how we're going to contribute to the community i think it's a great opportunity for beginning farmers and that's kind of who they're targeting but also minorities and women um, i think that that's something that they're interested in and indiana doesn't have a lot of participation in that way beginning farmers um, most people are already established so i think we're kind of coming into a scenario that is attractive because there aren't a lot of applicants. There aren't a lot of people seeking out this really specific loan. There's some wonderful details too about like not having a needing to have a down payment for what you're doing and the way you pay it back is once a year instead of a monthly. 
situation. So there's a lot of um, benefit to people getting started in farming. Uh, they really work with you, I think. Yeah, and our loan officer ran a farm, so she's not a banker, right? She's coming from the perspective of, I understand what you're going through. I started off the same way that you did and hoping to support us throughout the whole process, which I love. When we had this conversation, it was about a year ago. Their lease was up and they needed to move, but they were still in the process of securing the loan for the land they hoped to purchase. We still have an appraisal to do there and the title insurance stuff and, and the clo- the actual closing. Could, yeah, and, and we're working with the government, so that takes a little bit longer. Um, they do things very um, precisely, and yeah, but we're right at the point where our application is almost completely finished as of tomorrow, and then they'll review it um, and give us an answer, mm-hmm. I think, this week, by this week. But the first step we had to do was get a purchase agreement. So a lot of it... Yeah, that's a- That's the big part of it. So even if you get all of this together and you're so excited and you've got this great plan, you have to find the property first, and then you have to secure the purchase agreement from the owner. It's only a barrier that you have to find the land first, and, I mean, that's difficult. And Brett was, you know, brilliant. He found this online at like 9:15 a.m. <laughs> right after he came came on that day cuz we'd been searching hard for rentals for you know to accommodate a farm which mm-hmm. is ridiculous yeah. or um trying to buy a place after we found out that we could buy a place if we got a loan so I was like really really moving on that and you know things just cost so much uh a house a decent house to live in which we certainly need and then land five acres was the, our budget. And then we found this place that, that needed um, work, although it's got good bones, really, um, well, and 25 right. acres. We'd like to eventually um, try to grow hemp if our state allows that, and they're close to that. So um, having 25 or more acres you know, around you is really important to, to be able to do something like that for yourself and the, and the community. Really the perfect place yeah. for us, for, our, for this fantasy or dream that we're creating. Uh, it was the right everything. Mm-hmm. As, <laughs> as long as all the little pieces fit, it's, you know, the loan and the, the moving. And if, is, yeah, we're crossing our fingers. We are so, so hopeful and so close that um, we can taste it. Okay, so what about that part where they move all those sheep in a minivan? We'll get to that. Eventually. In the second part of our series called Have Sheep, Will Farm, we talk with loan officer Kathleen Walters to learn more about FSA loans and what they could mean for Lauren and Brett's farming dreams. Stay tuned for the second installment later this month on Earth Eats. To see some photos of Lauren and Brett and the Jacob sheep, go to our website, eartheats.org. The Earth Eats team includes Aelbon Binder, Chad Bouchard, Alex Chambers, Mark Chilla, Taylor Killo, Josephine McRobbie, Daniel Orr, the IU Food Institute, Harvest Public Media, and me, Renee Reed. Our theme music is composed by Aaron Toby and performed by Aaron and Matt Toby. Earth Eats is produced and edited by Kate Young 
and our executive producer is John Bailey. Special thanks this week to Lauren McAllister, Brett Volpe, and everyone at Three Flock Farm. Production support comes from insurance agent Dan Williamson of Bill Rush Insurance, offering comprehensive auto, business, and home coverage in affiliation with Pekin Insurance. Beyond the expected. More at 812-336-6838. Bill Brown at Griffey Creek Studio, architectural design and consulting for residential, commercial, and community projects. Sustainable, energy-positive, and resilient design for a rapidly changing world. Bill at GriffeyCreek.studio. And Elizabeth Rue, enrolled agent providing customized financial services for individuals, businesses, and disabled adults, including tax planning, bill paying, and estate services. More at personalfinancialservices.net.